Welcome back to Friday the 13th Horror Podcast, and we're back with one of our favorite sidecasts to do, a horror hookup. And in this horror hookup, we are so glad to bring you author Paul Tremblay. Paul, welcome. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me, uh, Maddie and Andrew. I'm super excited. Yeah, totally. Um, so we should uh, start with that you are the Bram Stoker Award-winning author. A good point. Yes, good point. <laughs> and also the British Fantasy Award-winning Paul Tremblay. So, Paul, why don't you uh, just give a brief introduction to who you are for our listeners that have uh, not had the pleasure of knowing who you are yet? Sure. So, I mean, the awards kind of covers it because I walk around with a t-shirt that says I've won these awards. I'm really obnoxious that way. No, uh, I mean, I guess I'm a lifelong New Englander. Um, I've always been a fan of horror. Uh, and with the release of A Head Full of Ghosts, which was 2015, that was my first horror novel and, you know, by far, at the time, my sort of biggest breakout. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to be known as a horror writer, even though I used to write, like, some mysteries as well. But horror is really sort of in my, my lifelong love. Yeah, because you've been an author for a while. It's just taken a little bit to get you to the caliber mm. that you're at now. <laughs> I'm so old. Yes. <laughs> no. Uh, no. It's true. It's. I mean, it's definitely been like sort of a, I don't know, a long, slow trajectory. You know, which is fine. Um, I don't know. I, I. I kind of. I wouldn't have it any other way. I kind of. I like the idea that you know I've taken my time and I feel like I've. You know, I certainly don't know everything, but I've certainly you know learned along the way, and I sure. think it's been. Uh, it's nice to have sort of that luxury or even privilege to have time. Cause I know if I was coming up today, hmm. I would be even more stressed out about having to uh, be, I don't know, successful quicker. I mean, I think that's the hardest thing for newer writers today. Yeah. yeah. And the on, immediacy of everything. Yeah. Be on social and do all the things. <laughs> right. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul, what, what really brought you to horror? What, what, what about the genre spoke to you? What about it? You know, how, how did you get here? Yeah, it's in some ways it's just really kind of hard to explain, but it's almost like I feel like it's just such like an innate part of me. It's almost hard for me to understand people who aren't horror fans because as long as you know, as far back as my memories go, I've always been interested. You know, that's not to say I haven't been terrified by it because you know I was uh, a super scaredy cat as a child, <laughs> and I'm still a mostly super scaredy cat adult as well. <laughs> but but for me, my, my I guess my introduction and love of horror started with movies. Um, 
when I was growing up just outside of Boston. This is pre-cable. Again, I already admitted to being oldish. Gen, Gen <laughs> Xer. Um, uh, there was a program called Creature Double Feature that, that they would play on, like UHF Channel 56 mm. on Saturday afternoons. And you know they would show two two movies. Usually the first one was like a Godzilla kaiju kind of movie. Yeah. You know, and the second one was more straight horror, maybe like a Hammer horror film or like a, a '50s black and white B movie. And you know, I loved Godzilla. And the second movies would always just terrify me and give me horrible <laughs> nightmares. Even like movies that were like so bad, like uh, Attack of the Killer Shrews. I remember having Killer oh Shrew nightmares. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it was always there. I mean, always had this like. Uh, I don't know, like, no, I don't want to say love hate, but you know, I was definitely attracted to it. But at the same time, I had to sleep with stuffed animals positioned around my head. Of course, and, as and we to all a, <laughs> that's yes, so cute. To, to an embarrassingly old age, <laughs> um, I would, you know, just no judgment here. Terrified at the dark. No, oh, thank you. This is a judgment-free zone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had a younger brother who was into horror too, and he was funny. I would use him as like a canary in the coal mine. Hot. Like, you know, our, our bedrooms were upstairs. And I would always send him upstairs first if it was night, just to see if he if he made it. Then I, I could go upstairs. <laughs> That's afterwards. amazing. The sacrificial lamb of my younger brother. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so of gosh. course it, it backfired a little bit because my brother became like an even more like sort of hardcore horror fan. Like he was watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre when he was eleven, and I think I watched that movie for the first time like four years ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're not quite ready for that level yet. No, That's yeah. perfect. <laughs> now, so. I was introduced to you by two books. Uh, I read first uh, Cabin at the End of the World, and then after that, I read Disappearance at Devil's Rock. And I have to say, the the, the style of writing that you do, I feel like I'm having a panic attack the entire time. <laughs> wow. How do you... Is, is that intentional, or is that just kind of how your brain spills onto the paper? Like, Did you take a work? Xanax when you read the book? <laughs> You know, I you know I don't have as much anxiety as you. I know. Oh my god, and, I, I'm I'm uh, like total anxiety disorder. It, and I, and I'm saying this in a good way. I'm sure, saying sure, of that, course. Like, this is this is something that gets me going. Like yeah. my heart is going the entire time, and it makes me want to turn the page or turn mm. the Kindle or whatever you're reading mm. on right. really quick. So like, how do, how do you get to that? Interesting. Well, thank you. first, thank you. Uh, I mean, I was definitely trying to go for that for Cabin in particular. Um, I know. I think maybe one thing I do is you know both books are written in first person. And to me, that lends a little bit more immediacy to, to what's happening. Mm. Um, you know, and both books are sort of not quite in real time, but they sort of take place. I mean, I guess cabin does sort of take place in real time, you know, with the exception of some of the flashbacks, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. It strikes people different ways. Cause I've, um, you know, I do my best to avoid reading reviews, but sometimes they're hard not to escape. And it's been funny to see, particularly in the case of cabin where some people are like, this is so slow. <laughs> and other people, I don't like, understand oh, my that gosh. review. <laughs> you know, other people like, Oh my, you know, mo- uh, most people, I can say most people, why not? Most people are saying, Oh yeah, this is so intense and I can't put it down. So I don't know. I mean, I, I try to write it in a way that I think it would be intense for me. And yeah, I've always, as a reader, I'm always a character first person. So you know, I read, try to make that, it I read try to make very that um, cinematically to me. Like um, I could picture this, you know what I mean? Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's sort of, in some ways, certainly like the scenes that sort of have staging and then there's, you know, action going on for, I guess, uh, is the best way to say it. I definitely am sort of writing sort of what I see in my head um, for for those scenes. So, yeah, I'll I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, 
And we should uh, say that we won't give anything away for sure, particularly sure. Right. about this book because we highly encourage you go out and read, you know, all of all of Paul's work. <laughs> but uh, especially Cabin, I think is. A truly a standout for our readers, just given the um, LGBTQ ar- arena. Sure, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Yeah. Now, 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 speaking of reviews, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's <laughs> just this uh, this this very little known obscure horror writer <laughs> named Stephen yeah. King. Perhaps you you might I, I doubt you've heard of him, but um, <laughs> St- Stephen King um, he he had a little blurb about your book called A, a Head Full of Ghosts. And he said this, he said, a head full of ghosts scared the living hell out of me, and I'm pretty hard to scare. Now, that is one hell of an endorsement. Now, how did that feel to get that kind of praise? But also, I want to know, why do you think it scared him so much? Uh, So, you mean... You want me to react to what he tweeted on August nineteenth, twenty thousand fifteen? Oh, so you, you just you just you just you just happen to have the the, the date and time of that tweet uh, memorized? It's tattooed on my forearm. That's no, fantastic. I, no, I just have, no. I mean, uh, it was funny. So it was about two months or two and a half months after a head full of ghosts had come out. Okay. You know, and, and I had heard from a few a couple of acquaintances that hey, you know, I know that Stephen has a book. Yeah, I, I, I had heard like also pause. Maybe. I love that you just called him Steven first person. Like he's your friend. That's amazing. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Steve, uncle Steve. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I had heard, I yeah. heard that he you had the book, but you know, you know, a, a few months went by and like, oh, I know he gets like thousands of books and you know, uh, if he read it, maybe he didn't like it, but you know, it was probably more just, I know he's inundated with books. So sure. You know, it was, it was late August, and I still teach high school. So in late August, I get more depressed than the students do when it's time to return back to school. <laughs> of course, I, I was course. home like moving furniture because we just bought a new table. So I was like hot and gr- grumpy because I was moving heavy things, and then my phone just started <laughs> blowing up because people saw Stephen's tweet before I did. Wow! Um, and I'm not ashamed to admit when I saw the tweet, um, you know, I got emotional. I I, I started wow. crying, and then of course you did. I, I, I stopped moving. I immediately stopped moving furniture. I went into the refrigerator and pulled out a six pack of beer. Yeah. Just opened my laptop and had myself like a one man party for the rest oh, of the night. That's uh, amazing. <laughs> so no, it was definitely one of, you know, my personal professional highlights for sure. And uh, you know, and since that tweet, you know, he you know, we we do email each other and he's super nice and super uh oh, that's super so supportive. Cool. Wow. Um yeah, what was the second question? The, 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 <laughs> that puts the, me like the second, the second part of that question, yeah. you know, and may, maybe you don't know, but you know, maybe in the emailing back and forth, oh, maybe right. he's told you. And without giving any spoilers for the book, like, is there is there a particular theme of the book, perhaps, or is there something about the book that you think really scared Stephen King? Like that's like he said, that is hard to do. What do you think sure. about it scared him? Boy, uh, it's it's hard to say because I feel like I'm a terrible judge of my own stuff of like what's scary or not mm. because. Just like humor, scare. What, what's scary to someone is to seem so subjective to me. Yeah, of course. I, mean, yeah. I think I think you can intellectualize. Oh yeah, this is supposed to be scary or this is supposed to be funny. Hmm. So I don't know. I, again, I try to focus on the characters, make people really empathize with them. Um, you know, and for some of the characters, you know, really care for them. So hmm. I kind of feel like if I do my job with the characters, hopefully most people, you know, will certainly feel something for them. Um, I don't know. I, with a head full of ghosts, and I, this isn't a spoiler, but like these three horror novels, a head full of ghosts, disappearance of Devil's Rock and Cabin, uh, they're all about you know different sorts of or different types of families in crisis, mm-hmm. and and they and they all involve like a an ambiguous supernatural element. So in the case of a head full of ghosts, it's it's definitely like a a postmodern riff on The Exorcist, 
Uh-huh. And um, there's a 14-year-old girl who may or may not be possessed. And the story is told by her younger sibling, her sister, who's eight at the time. Um, and this isn't a spoiler. I never tell you in the, in the book whether or not she's possessed. Interesting. Um, but but I, I build... I build basically the case for both sides. You know, there's definitely an end to the book. Uh, you know, the hopefully what people like to argue about. Um, but yeah, for some reason, you know, that book struck a chord with Stephen, and cool. um, yeah, I'm very happy it did. And he's, yeah. he's been very supportive of Cabin as well. It well, kind of reminds me of the way that you're describing it. It kind of reminds me of the exorcism of Emily Rose, yeah, where sure. you're, you're building up both sides, but you're not sure what's the truth. Right. No, definitely. And, which and, uh, is which is almost scarier in a lot of ways because yeah. you, you walk away not knowing whether it's mental health or whether it's actual, you know, spirituality right. or something else. And I thought and maybe the different part I did, and I think I did this with Cabin too, was usually, you know, you hear ambiguity. It's, oh, like they're leaving out information. And I, I tried it from the other direction where it was, mm-hmm. I'm just bombarding the reader with so much data, you know, as a reflection of sort of the time that we're living in because yeah. – I mean, we may talk about this with Cabin, but that was sort of one of the ideas was this age of misinformation that we're in. It's so difficult to parse out what is true and what isn't. That's so, really that's a really interesting angle to think about it from now that, now knowing and reading Cabin. Right. It's an interesting angle. I, I, I get that. But yeah. Um, so, I mean, so, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Speaking of Cabin at the end of the yeah. world, uh, can you give our listeners kind of a, a little non-spoiler, a uh, little synopsis or however you choose to describe <laughs> it? <laughs> sure. I, I guess basically I tend to just describe the opening. Um, so there's, uh, there's a married couple, Andrew and Eric, and their adopted daughter, Wen, uh, and, they, and they rented a, a cabin in a, a remote northern New Hampshire. Um, you know, they wanted to unplug for the week, so there's no cell reception. And mainly because I want to have a horror novel. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, so they're up there and uh, the novel opens with their daughter, Wen, who's seven going on eight. And she's out front of the cabin catching grasshoppers. And uh, a strange man shows up. Um, and it's quickly followed. By, and he sort of, he's very, tr- he seems to the eight-year-old, even though she knows better, very trustworthy. And, you know, she lets him play with her a little bit and talk to her. But by the end of it, you know, he tells her as some of his friends or not necessarily friends, but other people show up that, you know, he needs or they need to talk to the parents because they need their help in, uh, to, they need their help to stop the end of the world. Um, and it sort of goes from there. Yeah. I think that that's a pretty good place to leave it because <laughs> yeah. if that doesn't get people enticed, I don't know. What well, yeah. Will. yeah and, and, you know, just for our listeners, I, I have not have had the pleasure of reading the book quite yet, but Andrew has, has filled me in. Um, and from what I know, beyond what you just told us, I am super intrigued, and I cannot wait to read this book for sure. Well, thank you. I guess the only other thing I would say is um, it, it's, it definitely fits in the, the mm-hmm. subgenre of home invasion stories for horror novels. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, that's like my that's probably by my by far my least favorite subgenre oh, of horror. Interesting. Um, I don't know because the, the, there are some movies I definitely do like, like you know the classic Wait Until Dark and. Oh yeah, Maybe more, more yeah, more recently, Mike Flanagan's Hush on Netflix is really good. Mm-hmm. Ugh, talk but, about uh, anxiety, Jesus yeah. Christ! So I mean, part of it is it is it's so like real life icky that it's just like you don't want to think about it. But also, I think most Hollywood movies tend to, I don't know, forego the characterization and just really sort of focus on the violence in it. Oh, I don't yeah. know. I, I tend not to enjoy those. So that. Right from the beginning, that was like the weird, like, oh, okay, Mr. Big Mouth, how would you write a home invasion? <laughs> how would you write a home invasion story that you would want to sit through? Um, so that was really one of the starting points for the book. 
Now, Paul, uh, speaking of real life, uh, as I'm sure you know, here on Friday the 13th, we are a podcast that explores not just horror in the movies or in books or in other forms of media, uh, but also horror in real life. And, you know, we bring that uh, to our listeners from an LGBT perspective. And so it's it's usually um, it's usually pretty well received by our folks out there. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you tell us, you know, did anything from real life, you know, any horrors in real life inspire the writing of, of Cabin or really any of your books? Oh, definitely. Um, I think, you know, I, we talked a little bit about how I think one of the bigger springboards once I, I mean, because the novel actually literally started with me happen, happening uh, uh, by mistake, doodling a cabin in the notebook that I had while I was on an airplane back from Los Angeles. And looking at the cabin made me think of, oh, who's in the cabin? Like, this would be like a home invasion story. So aside from that, you know, thinking about horror, um, as we, we talked about, I think a, a big sort of real life thing that I'm grappling with and cabin and a head full of ghosts as well uh is the idea of you know we're living in this you know what's supposed to be the age of information but has obviously become the age of misinformation Mm. you know the idea that we're so connected that you know maybe stories like these couldn't happen uh and that actually i would go back to disappearance of devil's rock too where a kid goes missing in the the first chapter Mm. and you would think with snapchat and cell phones that you know, it, oh yeah, the resolution to this will be easy. But in fact, yeah. you know, in, in in all three novels, the intrusion of technology actually makes it more difficult to figure out what it is that's actually really happening. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that that's definitely an overarching mm-hmm. theme that, that's going on through all the books. Uh, I, otherwise, like with Cabin, it was more like once I had the story, you know, I would pull from maybe real life to to try to build some of the characters. I mean, there's one event that happens that I don't want to talk about just because I feel like it's kind of a spoiler. I mean, but sure, we can talk sure. about it yeah, if you'd like. But uh, but maybe one real-life instance that I did pull in to maybe explain some of the invaders or to, to at least put them in context hmm. is the idea of um, there's these communities, online communities of targeted individuals or TIs, they, mm-hmm. they refer to themselves. Huh. You know, and these are people who are suffering from, um, you know, I can't give the, the specific yeah, sure, no, what they're suffering okay. with, but... You know, they have these uh, hallucinations and vivid, um, you know, they hear voices and they think that people are are out to get them or they're being wow. followed by the governments. And so, but instead of for, but for so many of these people, they won't go to therapy because the therapist tells them that what you're experiencing is actually, you know, some sort of symptom of a, you know, of a mental issue, right? So, yeah. but, but when they go online. Just think of like a, a subreddit, if you will. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. But so many, so many of these people are now going online because when mm-hmm. yeah that must be, just be horribly devastating news like if you believe that oh my god these terrible things are happening to me you go see someone and they say no that's actually not real but if you mm-hmm. go online you find other people say oh no I'm experiencing the same thing so you there's validation, validation in that right yeah exactly so there's yeah. actually there was there was a huge story in the New York Times uh, it's probably two years old at this point about some of these communities and actually there was I huh. forget. This is horrible to say, but I forget which mass shooting this was because there are sure. so many. Sure. Uh, there was one that was perpetrated by, I think he was someone in the armed forces. You know, he was someone who was a part of these online TI groups that support yeah. each other and like, no, this is, you know, you are, you know, we aren't paranoid. This is really happening. So well, the, the, the latest, the latest shooting in New Zealand bears that out, doesn't it? You know I mean? This oh, absolutely. Is, it wasn't right. just, it wasn't just a person who, who spent his his existence in these pathetic chat rooms, but also he was literally live broadcasting the murder as it, as it took place. No, absolutely. It's just, it's, it's really just a, a terrifying, um, 
we're, we're, we're in the middle ages of social media and we'll see where we, where we end up. No, that's a good way of putting it because I mean, I don't know. I mean, every day I have the impulse to be like, ah, I shouldn't just like, you know, unplug totally. But at the same time, there's so much personally, there's just so much cool stuff. Like I get to meet right. and talk to people yeah. I never would have met otherwise. And, yeah, and obviously totally. social media has given a voice, has given a voice to people who otherwise sure wouldn't have had a voice, you know, so easily. So it is sort of like I've written three, I guess I've sort of written three books about that anxiety, about the push and pull of, huh. of, of, you wow. know, social media in particular. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, what like draw, like drew me to you is I, I think I saw mm. something around, um, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm on these Facebook groups. I'm on these Twitter Groups Speaking that, of social media, that, that, that talk about gay themes, and you right. know, there, there's not a lot of representation of gay people uh, positive in horror, especially. So, you know, we're usually the first ones to die, or like the right. the gay best friend, or you know, it's just something that is written off really easily. But in your book, I mean, the the mm. two main or two of the three main characters are a gay couple, and right. uh, and I have to say for for your book especially written very uh, real, not um, stereotypical. These aren't like your RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, okay, girl, like all that. Kind of, this right. is like, this is just uh-huh. a real couple. Like, Round, this is, yeah. real humans. Right. And uh, so what, what made you want to like uh, write from that angle? Well, for, thank you. First, uh, I really appreciate that you, 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 uh, you thought I did a good job with the characters. Uh, so... Part it's funny. Part of it with a head full of ghosts. Just really briefly with that one, I definitely wanted to take head on sort of the some of the. Because I have a love, I do have a love hate relationship with horror. Because I love it when it's mm. done well, but but the parts of horror that are are you know, reactionary and misogynistic and homophobic. I mean, I think sure. horror ha- has has rightly earned criticism for for those things. So yeah. with a head full of ghosts, I was definitely playing with the idea that uh, of. You know, I, I chose the 14-year-old girl to be possessed for a reason because they're typically the ones that are possessed and definitely tried to view it from a, a feminist angle. Uh, so with the cam at the end of the world, I really did want to make sure, you know, that these characters were, you know, were realistic, but, you know, at the same time, you know, reflected, you know, the struggles that they go through. I mean, I definitely had a, a, a large political context in mind. I mean, it was impossible to escape because I wrote the book I started writing the book during the 2016 presidential primaries. Oh, good God. Um, <laughs> and in fact, we won't talk. I can tell you off here if you'd like. But uh, <laughs> you know, I had a different ending in mind for the book. But then when Trump got elected, I, I, I had I changed the end of the book. I, yes, I, I will <laughs> want to know that after we get off. Because... <laughs> yeah. um, so I was definitely thinking in, in terms of politics. Like I wanted the book to work as a political allegory. Um so I felt like this, you know, the family that I ended up choosing would be sort of perfect way to, to represent that. But on a personal level, I don't know, it was my seventh novel that was going to be published and that seemed like a really big deal to me. And, and I couldn't help but think back to, you know, where I started um, writing. When I first started writing, um, uh, my cousin, who's also like a dear friend, Michael, and his, his partner, Rob, or husband now, and uh, my Aunt Mary and her wife, Debbie, uh, you know, they're family, but also like super close friends. Like we hang out, we, we take vacations together. Um, awesome. and, they, and, and they were the first people that read my stories. Like way back when Wonderful. I, the first story, I, ever, I mean, the first stuff I wrote was just awful, you know, not, not good. 
we'll never see the we'll never see the light of day. But uh, it's funny, like all the years that I've written, I vividly remember going to Michael and Rob's uh, Brookline condo. You know, we were going to play games. We played like some dice games. Yeah. You know, with Mary and Debbie and uh, Lisa and me and Michael and Rob. But you know, but part you know, we took a break and part we threw. They all had a copy of the first story that I had written, and you know, we talked about it. You know, they'd all read it, and put like great deep thought into it. So for really the first. I don't know, my, my first four or five years as a writer, you know, Michael and Rob and Mary and Debbie were my first readers. Um, and That's they still really are, cool. like, they still, you know, read all my stuff now, but, um, I don't know. I thinking like, I felt like this was an important milestone for me. I wanted mm. to honor sort of them in a way that was more than just, you know, an acknowledgement in a book kind of thing. You know, yeah. and I was super nervous in writing it. And actually I brought back Michael as he was the first person to read cabin before anyone else read it. Um, you know, we talked quite a bit about the characters in the story. So, um, you know, I, you know, as a, you know, cisgendered middle-aged, it's so sad that I'm middle-aged now. <laughs> uh, We're right behind you. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> um, you know, Mel, I can, I can, I cannot tell anybody that I certainly understand what it is to be a, a gay man in America, but, um, I can I can intellectualize it. I can never understand it. But I'm, the, I don't know, to me, the magic part about writing is that um, if you do your job as a as a writer, you leave enough room for for the readers to bring their own experience to thing, their own experience to what's going on. And you know, and if you do your job well enough, that your characters, you know, are, are real enough that the readers can have empathy with them. People get to bring their own experience to it, and it works that way. I mean, it's easier said than done. I don't know how it works, but I don't know. To me, that's sort of like the magic of fiction. So that anyone you know compliments me on those characters is, yeah, I feel very humbled by that. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry. Sorry to go rambling. No, that's no, sort not, of where not, not a ramble in the least. And you know, we yeah. we certainly appreciate you you doing us. Uh, we do a good ramble ourselves. Such, <laughs> yeah, now, now and then, sometimes alcohol induced. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, you know, uh, the, f- from us, you know, we 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 of course really appreciate any time that our community has done justice by by writers and by directors and by actors who, you know, take us seriously and, and want to see good representation out there because that's the name of the game, you know? Right. So, uh, you know, one of the, um, we, we mentioned uncertainty a little bit earlier. Um, mm-hmm. and the, 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 one of the main themes, uh, of, of cabin at the end of the world, it really is uncertainty. You know, it's about who is telling the truth and what the real implications are of, of what's going on. So was there a reason, um, that uncertainty really was such a central, um, played such a, such a central role in the book? Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately that's probably what appeals to me most about horror stories. I mean, there's all sorts of different kinds of horror mm. stories, obviously, but my favorites tend to play with ambiguity or the sense of uncertainty. Cause I don't know, I think in a lot of ways that represents, you know, our existence, right? There's just, sure. you know, we go, I mean, you go through your day to day thinking things are a lot more, uh, you know, certain than they are. I mean, you kind of have to, to be able to go three days. It's not like I sit around all the time thinking, Oh my gosh, nothing is real. What the hell is uh, going to happen next? <laughs> but yeah, you know, uh, I just, I find it fascinating and sort of endless. It's like endless fodder for stories. Like, you know, just even huh. like identity is so, is a lot you know, like what you, who you are. I mean, is a lot more malleable than I think people like to think about. I mean, we rely so much on like what our parents told us about what we did as kids. Like, I don't remember <laughs> half the stuff my parents told me, but those oh, stories became like point. formative, right? Um, I don't know, like, how do we know other people? We only know them by what they say and what they do. We can't actually get into their heads. And I don't know. I feel like there's, 
that inherent ambiguity of reality to me is just so interesting. Um, it's such a, I don't know. I always, I, I find myself always going back to explore it. I mean, I, I can't always do the, is it real or is it not thing for fiction as much as, uh, my editor playfully calls me Mr. Ambiguous Horror. <laughs> uh, cause I know people get tired of that. So with this next book that I'm writing, I'm, I'm trying something a little bit different, but I'll, I'll definitely always go back to that idea because I don't know. Uh, to me, it's like the fundamental question of existence, right? Interesting. And if, if we're going to make, like, to me, if you want to boil, again, there's all sorts of horror stories, but my favorite horror stories, to boil it down, would be there's a reveal of some truth. And maybe you could say that's any sort of movie or piece of literature, right? There's, and it doesn't have to be horror, but there's a reveal of some truth. Yeah. Um, and in a horror story, that truth is going to be, obviously, a terrifying reveal or, you know, some horrific truth. And it could be social, personal, or even universal. Um, and then to me, the most interesting part after that is, okay, after the reveal, you know, what are the characters going to do now? What decisions do they make? You know, how do they live through this? Right. How does anybody live through this? So, um, I, you know, I would hope that, you know, my characters always come first because of that. Um, I think early on as a writer, you know, so, you know, with the twilight zone, so many stories have like the twist ending as the big thing. Right. You know, when you're working in the longer form, I, I forget who it was that said this cause it certainly wasn't me, but I certainly glommed onto it. It's like, well, what if the twist happens like partway through? Like, mm. and then what happens afterwards is just, you know, that's the horror. That's so interesting. Like how do people survive that? Yeah. Very well, cool. Well, knowing now that you had <laughs> multiple endings uh, in your head for Cabin at the End of the World, uh, is there any return to this universe? I mean, it, it, this this book definitely builds up a universe that uh, we're left with at the end of the book. And... I mean, is there any plan to return or are we, are we moving on from this story? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, uh, I, I think this story in particular, I'm kind of like, I want that to be its own closed little thing. Cause I feel like if I did anything else that would change or reframe the ending and uh, I'm very partial to the ending the way yeah. it is without, without getting spoilers. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I don't even, I mean, that sort of re- just reflects my own personal interest as a reader too. Like I tend not to read series or, or anything like that. Like, so even though I feel like these books that I've written, the three of them are, are connected thematically, you know, they're all sort of standalone and different. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I'm, I, I highly enjoyed <laughs> both books that I read from beginning to end. So that's awesome. I'll just leave you with that, that five star <laughs> review on Amazon. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. So that. like, uh, I mean, what's next? Uh, what are, what, what was in the next, uh, the next novel, the next, uh, movie? the next thing sure. like what's, what's um, going on with you well so first i have a, a short story collection coming out in july called Ooh. growing Thi- called growing things and other stories um there's 19 stories so it's actually quite a there's a whole bunch i and, love the short story form oh, so much yeah. i cannot wait for that and uh i'd say like three of them have direct connections to a head full of ghosts which is kind of fun uh like the title story growing things is a reference to something that happens to a in a head full of ghosts. Oh, fun. Um, but there are also a couple of stories that connect to disappearance of devil's rock. Um, cool. there's one novella that I wrote for, uh, I'm kind of laughing cause the title is goofy, but there's a novella that I wrote, especially for the collection called notes from the dog walkers. Uh, and the story is told through notes left by dog walkers, by people who walk the dog. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. People who walk the dog of this writer who's clearly sort of me. So it's kind of like a fun <laughs> That's metafictional, metafictional riff uh, that, that was uh, a lot of fun to write. So that's coming this summer. Right now, uh, I'm working on a novel uh, that I hope will be out the following year. 
it's due in August and I'm kind of behind on it. Don't tell my publisher. Hopefully she's not listening. <laughs> um, yeah, as far as movies go, um, I can tell you that both A Head Full of Ghosts and uh, The Cabinet at the End of the World are, are, sort, are in development. I mean, it's not, they're not filming or anything like that, but mm-hmm. you know, I, uh, they just finished uh, – two screenwriters just finished – a couple of a wow. couple of draft a couple of drafts of the cabin screenplay and knock on wood uh, maybe a handful of ghosts might go into pre production later this year but who knows well, when that happens we're gonna say we knew you when exactly <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah no help help one of them jeez bring us to the premiere party okay yeah. <laughs> All we, right, dre- we 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 dress really well yeah. we, we promise. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, uh, we've truly appreciated um, all the time that you've given us today uh, and, you know, all of the novels and the writings that you've given us as as readers. I mean, as both of us, I mean, are very avid readers, whether that's horror or otherwise. But um, the fact that um, authors give us that privilege of reading their their mm-hmm. work is, is just something <laughs> that we really that we really like hold close to our hearts. And so we really appreciate that you, you do that for us. Well, please, thank you, thank you for reading, and, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I can't remember if I said this on air or off, but, I mean, this is the fun part for me. I mean, during the, during the school year, I teach high school, so I'm definitely not cool to those guys. So it's nice <laughs> to have people <laughs> want to talk about the cool stuff you know, outside of the classroom. Well, you will be cool. Anytime. You will be cool to all of our listeners, we promise. And Paul, uh, thank you again for being with us on behalf of Friday the 13th Horror Podcast. And you can find all of Paul's work on Amazon. I mean, you can buy them in paperback. They're they're available everywhere, so look them up. And Paul, what's your website? Uh, PaulTremblay.net, or I'm on Twitter, Paul G. Tremblay. And you have prepared for us a little reading from Cabin at the End of the World. I did, or so, I have. Yeah, so we're going to go ahead and close out the show, and then everyone stay tuned to get a little sneak peek into the beginning of Cabin at the End of the World. Maddie, why don't you take us out? You got it. So once again, to Paul Tremblay, thank you so much for being with us. Once again, to all of our listeners, we love you so much here at Friday the 13th Horror Podcast. We'll be back soon with some even more uh, great content for you. Um, you know, keep in touch with us on Twitter, of course, at Friday 13 on Instagram at Friday 13 surprise on Facebook. Just search for us. However, that search thing happens. Um, and of course our website is Friday 13.com. Don't forget, please to rate and review us on Apple podcasts, especially because that's how, I don't know, the algorithm thing works. Just go do it. If you haven't done it yet, we really need it. Um, and, uh, without further ado, let's just go straight to Paul. As Wen searches for a sixth grasshopper, she hears someone walking or jogging on the forever long dirt road that winds by the cabin and traces the lake shoreline before sneaking off into the surrounding woods. When they arrived two days ago, it took them 21 minutes and 49 seconds to drive the length of the dirt road. Wen timed it. Granted, Daddy Eric was driving way too slowly, like always. The sounds of feet mashing and grinding into the dirt and stone are louder, closer, Something big is trudging its way down the road, really big. Maybe it's a bear. Daddy Eric made her promise she would yell for them and run inside if she saw any animal bigger than a squirrel. Should she be excited or scared? She doesn't see anything through the crowd of trees. Wen stands in the middle of the lawn, ready to run if necessary. Is she fast enough to get inside the cabin if it is a dangerous animal? She hopes it's a bear. She wants to see one. She can play dead if she has to. 
Her, curio her curiosity shifts gears into becoming annoyed to have to be dealing with whatever whomever is there because she's in the middle of an important project. A man rounds the bend and walks briskly down the driveway like he's coming home. Wen is not a good judge of height at all, as adults exist in that cloud-filled space above her, but he is easily taller than her dad's. He might be taller than anyone she has ever met, and he's as wide as a couple of tree trunks pushed together. The man waves with a hand that might as well be a bear's paw, and he smiles at Wen. This man's smile is warm and wide. His face opens its curtains naturally. Wen can't fully describe the difference between a real smile and a fake one, but she knows it when she sees it. He is not faking. His is the real thing, so real as to be contagious, and Wen gives him a tight-lipped smile she covers with the back of her hand. The man is dressed inappropriately for jogging or hiking in the woods. His clunky black shoes with thick rubber soles piled beneath his feet stand him up even taller. They are not sneakers, and they are not the nice dress-up shoes Daddy Eric wears. They are more like the Doc Martens Daddy Andrew wears. Wen remembers the brand because she likes that his shoes are named after a person. The man wears dusty blue jeans and a white dress shirt, tucked in and buttoned all the way up to the top, squeezing the collar around his fire hydrant neck. He says, Hi there. His voice is not as big as he is, not even close. He sounds like a teenager, like one of the student counselors in her after-school program. Hi. My name is Leonard. Wen doesn't give her name, and before she can say, let me go get my dad's, Leonard asks her a question. Is it okay if we talk a little before I talk to your parents? I definitely want to talk to them, too, but uh, let's you and I chat first. Is that okay? I don't know. I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. You're right, and you're very smart. I promise that I'm here to be your friend, and I'm not going to be a stranger for long. He smiles again. It's almost as big as a laugh.